0: Diary. 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 Radio. 2016 brought us one of the most interesting election seasons in American history. President-elect Donald Trump came out on top, basing his qualifications in part on his success as a businessman and, like many of the country's wealthiest people, he also claimed to be generous with his personal fortune. During his campaign, Trump said repeatedly that he'd given tens of millions of dollars to charity. Out of his own pocket, in one of the most prominent investigations of the campaign season, the Washington Post found out that for the most part, that isn't true.
1: I felt like I had learned basically what I could about Trump's charitable giving, you know, which is that it, it appears to be a facade that he, he, you know, he claims to, to be a philanthropist, but. You know, at every turn to, to, to you know, try to avoid actual philanthropy or to have other people pay his philanthropy for him.
0: On this episode of the podcast, Riley Began talks with David Farenthold about his investigation into Donald Trump's history of charitable giving, or lack thereof. We'll hear about the methods he used to get hard-to-find details on Trump's spending and how he learned that Trump has likely been breaking the law by using his foundation to pay for personal items and to help his for-profit companies. Plus, he'll tell us his thoughts on how journalists should cover the Trump administration going forward. I'm Daniela Vidal, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. It was
2: 1996. The Association to Benefit Children was hosting a ribbon-cutting ceremony in New York City to celebrate the opening of a nursery for children with AIDS. Big name, big dollar donors were given seats of honor at the front of the room. Then Mayor Rudy Giuliani and TV stars Frank and Kathy Lee Gifford were among them. There was an empty seat, save for Stephen Fisher, another donor who had given lots of money to build the nursery. There was a ruckus at the door, and all of a sudden, there was Donald Trump. He walked in and hunkered down in the empty seats, save for Fisher, just in time for the ceremony to begin, for the photos, the handshaking, and the chorus of children singing This Little Light of Mine. The association staff let the show go on, but they were confused, and who wouldn't be? Trump hadn't given a penny. If it wasn't reality, it would be comedy gold.
1: Somebody who used to work at that organization just emailed me out of the blue and said, "Listen, you've got to call the association to benefit children. There's this amazing tale that I had, you know, that she had heard when she worked there uh, about Trump, you know, showing up, stealing, you know, crashing the event, stealing the seat on on, on stage."
2: That's David Ferentzold, a national political reporter for the Washington Post.
1: Lo and behold, I, it was a group that he'd given so little money to that I hadn't even called them li- yet. They weren't I, they weren't on my list. Um, and But when I called, you could tell they had been waiting to tell this story for, you know, 20-plus years.
2: David's been investigating Donald Trump's charitable giving since early June. That list he's referring to has become an icon of persistent shoe-leather reporting in one of the most difficult election seasons for political reporters ever. More on that in a bit. His multi-month investigation began, like many good projects, with regular
1: beat coverage. You know, I started covering Trump. Uh, veterans donations back in um, back in February when after he had he had raised all the money he said for veterans and then he said he was going to give it all away but I realized that after having watched him do that for a few days in Iowa and New Hampshire he stopped giving the money away when he'd only given away about a million or a little over than a million dollars of the six million he said he would give away
2: so not even close
1: so that but that set me on like several months of trying to figure out what he had done with um, the money that he the other money the rest of the money including the million dollars he said would, would come out of his own pocket. That all ended up with him, you know, calling me a nasty guy, finally giving the million dollars away and sort of angrily um, detailing what he'd done with all this money people had given him for veterans. For David, that was a red flag. And so that made me think, OK, well, if this is how he treats charity when everybody's watching him. when he's, you know, when he's invited the scrutiny of himself during the middle of the presidential campaign, in which essentially he sat out of the money for a long time and only gave it under, only actually gave it away under tremendous pressure. And what was he doing with his charity before he was under scrutiny? When he was just a rich guy and no one was really paying attention to whether he followed up on his promises.
2: Trump was claiming that he'd given away tens of millions of dollars out of his own pocket. His philanthropy, the Donald J. Trump Foundation, seemed like a possible source of those donations. But tax records showed that the Trump Foundation had received most of its money from other donors, not Trump himself. David wanted to figure out whether or not it was true that Trump was the paragon of giving that he was touting on the campaign trail. So he started by asking the man himself.
1: I should say, first of all, I asked him for examples of the donations he'd given out of his own pocket and gotten nothing. So... um... I thought, well, I probably won't find the whole iceberg. I'm not going not to be able to find all the gifts that he gave away. Um, but if I look for them and I, I'm strategic about where I look for them, I could find the tip of the iceberg. I can find some evidence that the money he gave away really was, you know, that, that it really exists.
2: With no help from Trump himself, David began compiling a list of charities that seemed most likely to have gotten some of his money.
1: So I thought I would look at the charities that, seemed most likely to have gotten money. If Trump had given money to anybody, he would have given it to them. So I started with charities that he gave money to from the Trump Foundation, which is not his money, but um, I thought maybe if he liked them enough to give them other people's money, he might give them some money of his own. I looked at charities he'd praised on Twitter, charities he'd gone to their fundraisers, charities he'd, you know, his, par- his relatives had given money to, just any charity that he seemed like there was some connection to. Um, I called them and asked them, hey, have you ever gotten a personal donation from Donald Trump? And if so, you know, when was the last time?
2: In the end, David had a list of more than 450 charities that seemed likely candidates for Trump money. He started calling, and calling, and calling.
1: One of the things about Trump is that he's very secretive, um, but he's not very strategic. Uh, and so, you know, he would make promises and then basically sort of move on to the next uh, next audience before the first audience figured out that he hadn't followed up on his promise. And so um, the, the the weakness there for him or the vulnerability for him was that there were people out there who remembered what he'd done for them, who remembered the promises he'd made, and also the people there were people out there who could tell you whether he'd fulfilled the promise.
2: He tracked his calls using Google Sheets, but also wrote it all out on a color-coded notepad so it would be easy for readers to see his progress online and on social media. The visual was striking, especially because black ink, the color indicating charities that had never received money from Trump, dominated.
1: Well, there were some charities that said no comment, um, but a lot of them were willing to go back and search in their archives and tell me what they found. And um, what I found was between 2008, which is the last time he gave money to his own foundation, the Trump Foundation, and this May, which is when he made good on that that million-dollar promise to veterans, in that period, between 2008 and this May, I found one gift out of his own pocket. It was a gift of less than $10,000 back in 2009.
2: In short, he found almost nothing, at least nothing even close to the number Trump was claiming.
1: Um, so if he was truly following through on this promise to give away tens of millions of dollars, uh, you know, in this search for the 450 charities that seemed closest to him, I didn't find even the tip of the iceberg. I find no indication that that tens of millions of dollars of gifts existed.
2: It was looking more and more like the iceberg didn't exist. At all. It turns out that David was right in more than one way. Those missing Trump donations were breadcrumbs, leading to a much larger realization.
1: Along the way, I I learned something I I didn't even know I was looking for, which was the Trump Foundation. As I said, it's other people's money. I had thought of that from first as sort of a roadmap to where I might find personal donations from Trump's own pockets. But it, it turned out that those there was something interesting hidden in those donations, too.
2: As he worked his way through the list of charities, he started noticing a pattern. Organizations were saying they didn't receive any money from Trump himself. But then some would follow up with something a little curious, a story about how they came to receive Trump Foundation money.
1: I started to realize that he used the Trump Foundation in ways you're not supposed to use a foundation, particularly to buy things for himself or to buy things for his businesses. Uh, You know, he would use the Trump Foundation's money to buy portraits to hang on the wall of his businesses, to buy a signed football helmet, to um, to, to pay off legal settlements involving his businesses.
2: Those anecdotes started to stack up, and David started to delve into unfamiliar waters. So he sought out experts and lawyers that could help him understand charity law. After a while, the stories he was hearing began to make a lot more
1: sense. What happened in some cases was I just didn't know that much about charity law when I started this project. And as as time went on, and kind of by accident, I would discover something and talk to charity lawyers. And then I'd be like, wow, you know, I remember months ago, I found an example that actually, now that I'm more informed, I realize what I found was something important and and illegal.
2: One example is the case of Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club in Florida. In 2007, Trump got in a fight with the town of Palm Beach, Florida over the height of a flagpole stationed outside his luxury golf and beach club. He faced $120,000 in unpaid fines, but the town agreed in a settlement to waive those fines if Trump made a $100,000 donation to a veterans charity. Instead, Trump paid the donation with funds from his foundation, the one financed almost entirely by other people's money.
1: And I learned about that back in May, but didn't really understand why that was bad or that that was against the law. And it was only later that I saw, oh, well, you know, you can't use your foundation's money to, to pay off a debt incurred by your for-profit business. And I could go back and see what I had learned months before, and that became the basis of a, of a big story.
2: Trump used $5,000 of his foundation's money to buy ads for his hotel chains, $12,000 to buy a football helmet signed by then Denver Broncos quarterback Tim Tebow, $30,000 to buy two giant portraits of himself, to renovate a fountain conveniently located just outside the windows of a Trump hotel. The list goes on. Experts in charity law say these purchases are part of an illegal practice called self-dealing. If you're going to buy things that are a direct benefit to you, your business, or your family, you can't have your foundation pay for it. Two weeks after the election, David found 2015 IRS tax filings showing that the Trump Foundation had admitted to illegally participating in self-dealing. David was only able to get a hold of Trump one time over the course of more than eight months of reporting. In May, he was following up on the nearly $6 million Trump had raised months before to benefit veterans' causes. He asked, why did it take you four months to give that money away?
1: And he said, well, I needed to vet the group that I was giving the money to. I said, well, the group you gave money to gave you a a lifetime achievement award at a Black Tide gala at the Waldorf Astoria last year. So I I don't think you really needed to bet them. They were known to you. And he said, that's true. And I said, well, did you just give this money away? Because I was asking about it, you know, today. And he said, well, you're really a nasty guy.
2: The interview was an illuminating experience, if an odd one
1: the, inter- the inter- interchange was really interesting because he would say that you're a nasty guy you should be ashamed of yourself but I needed to get other factual information out of him I, I don't want to argue about whether I'm a nasty person or not so then I'd just say well okay now go- going back to you know this particular aspect of it. When did you call them? Why? You know how much money did you give? What about the other money, the Trump Foundation? I would just take it back to a factual question, and then he would reset from personal insults to answering the factual question, and then that answer would devolve into insults again, and then we'd start again on the next question, factual, devolving into insults. It was a really odd interview. Um, I didn't speak to him ever again, or he never called ever again.
2: He did, however, have a few more interactions with the Trump campaign, but they were limited.
1: Mostly, they just didn't respond to my questions. I'd send them questions on email, very detailed questions, asking fact-checking questions. Generally, they would not respond at all.
2: As a reporter who wanted to do his best to tell all sides of the story, that ended up being one of the most challenging aspects of the investigation for David.
1: If you called the Clinton campaign with questions about something, you'd hear from four different people and they'd send you white papers and policy statements and they would sort of try to overwhelm you with their side of the story. And the Trump people just often would not tell their side of the story. You, you could send them a bunch of questions and hear nothing, not even an acknowledgement that the questions had been received. So the challenge there was to try to tell Trump's side of the story if you got nothing out of him.
2: It took a lot of research, a lot of calls, a lot of shoe leather. The experience brought him back to a story he worked on in 2014 about the government's, quote, underground paperwork dungeon used to store federal employees' personnel records. If you're not familiar with this fast of the federal government, it's actually exactly like it sounds. An underground mine used to house documents and offices for the people who managed them. He was fascinated by it, but the Office of Personnel Management stonewalled him. There was no way in.
1: And so what I did was I started going around them. And so I started calling people and I got, I pulled government reports in that case, you know, GAO reports and stuff about how the mine worked. But also I started went on LinkedIn and other places and started finding people who used to work in the mine and now do not. And then, you know, tell me, okay, now who else would know? Tell me the guy you sat next to you. Tell me about, you know, through talking to other people, I got to where I knew what the mine looked like.
2: Eventually, it broke the story open. When he faced similar obstacles with the Trump campaign, he knew how he would approach the challenge.
1: Like I'm gonna I'm gonna, you know, think of myself like water or something. I'm gonna be find the way in. You know, I'm gonna go I'm gonna cover every surface and try to find the way in.
2: Fast forward to Tuesday, November eighth. The polls start closing, the results start rolling in, and newsrooms across the country begin to hustle. The gears of our electoral system churn through the night, ending in a historic upset. I'm curious about how you felt maybe late Tuesday (laughs) night, early Wednesday morning, um, when you realized that Trump was going to be president. um, How did how did you feel?
1: Well, you have to be humble in this business, right? You can't go around telling yourself that you made, you know, like I you know, if I ever told myself I made a difference in this presidential campaign or that I, you know, changed the outcome of the presidential campaign, that was probably never true, but it was it was obvious that night that, you know, you, you know, that's vanity to think that one reporter, you know, could, you know, could make such a big change. There's a lot of factors at play in something like a presidential campaign, and so you can't you know, think of yourself as the one who changes things. Your job is just to report, and, 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 you know, you have to do the job you have. You can't try to think that you're going to change these things on your own.
2: Some investigations have clear, tangible impact. Legislation is passed. Regulations are tightened. Lives are saved. But others have less clear-cut results. It might be easy to interpret the Washington Post investigation as ineffective, given the results of the election. But David says it's not that simple. The job of reporters is to report, not to persuade.
1: Uh, I I think probably it did make a difference to some people, you know, was it the difference to any one person who they said, oh, I can't support Trump, you know, because I read about his charitable giving. I don't know. Uh, Clearly, it it was not. There were a lot of factors at play in the election. Um, So uh, I didn't set out to do it thinking that I was going to, you know, use it to beat Trump or use it to change people's minds about him. I just wanted people to know, you know who they were getting. And also to, to you know, just to, this is a really important part of his self-image that he's a philanthropist. So it's important for me to know that, if, that it's true. Um, so, you know, I feel like I, I did what I could in, to let people know what was out there. Uh, and, you know, if people read that information and voted for him, then yeah, I've still done my job. I told you what you're getting.
2: And many journalists know exactly what they're getting going into the Trump administration. He's been a difficult candidate to cover, notoriously hard to get a straight answer out of. David's investigation left him with some useful tips for other reporters who will be covering the president-elect going forward.
1: He can often be secretive and deceptive, but he's not very strategic about it. And so uh, his his M.O. has often been to say something that is untrue or misleading to one group and then to move on to a different audience before the first audience realizes what has happened. And so to the, he's always finding a new audience. You know, think about Trump Stakes, Trump Water, Trump University, Trump Magazine, Trump, the airline. You know, you're reaching new audiences with those who don't remember what your, um, you know, what his record was and his other things.
2: But the good news for journalists is that each of those ventures leaves a trail. Reaching out to those old audiences, the ones that have dealt with Trump in the past, can help unearth information he's trying to keep secret
1: it's a time consuming method but it's 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 the way to to see you know how he really follows through uh, and the other thing is that his advantage has been to, as i said to move on from promise to promise from statement to statement from audience to audience and he did that pretty effectively during the campaign that he was able to say you know an outrageous thing today and then as the media is getting spun up to cover this today's outrageous thing tomorrow he'll say something new and then they have, you know so there's never he's always sort of a step ahead because people are trying to cover these things um, you know to react to them
2: it's an effective strategy, but David says there's a way around it.
1: So the key to me was to pin him down, you know, to just focus on one area of his life and remind, you know, continually return to it. Don't let him and his shifting agenda change your agenda. If you want to tell something important about Trump, it takes time to understand that facet. But once you've, once you've got it, um, you, can tell, you, you, know, you, can, you can learn a lot about him, but you have to just make sure you're focused on one subject and you're not chasing his words from day to day.
2: Plus, this isn't campaign season anymore. It's the real deal. And Trump's going to have less wiggle room than ever.
1: I think the 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 thing for him that's going to make being president hard is that the audience doesn't change. You know, you're under this, you're every day judged by your actions, not just by your words. And your and the people who are uh you know judging you are not going to move on. They're not going to lose sight of you. They're not going to, you know, the, the the press corps will be on him every day about everything. And the and the Democrats will and the Republicans who disagree with him in the House. You know, he's not going to be able to change the subject uh, as easily as he did, and he's not going to be able to control information the way he did because he's the head of a large, large government. Um, but I think that the lesson for reporters is that, you know, you can't just sh- shift subjects when he does. You have to make sure you're, you, if you find something important that tells you something important about the government or about him, you got to stay with that uh, and, and you, you know, not let him pull you off into the next thing.
2: And David plans to keep at it as well. He's going to continue covering Trump's charitable giving as a part of a larger beat about the president-elect. The New York attorney general opened an investigation into the Trump Foundation in February, and David says he'll be keeping a close eye on their findings. He'll also be continuing to rely on a large audience of online followers who have helped him get scoops in the past.
1: I, I have a big audience now who have proven to themselves to be extremely good sleuths and extremely good reporters, and I'm, I'm going to try to find a way to use the odd Twitter audience that I have, the engaged uh, people that I have um, following me now in the same way to try to you know, dig up more, to try to find more and see more and analyze more than I could have analyzed on my own. Um, and also, you know, just to, to remember that, what I was saying earlier about pinning him down and about focusing on one topic that, you know, that's whatever I do I want to make sure that I am i find a way to, both in my coverage and also in my Twitter feed and other places, that I find a way to focus myself and my readers on what we know about one thing and and to not let him change the subject if I think the subject is important.
2: Election night seemed like it would be the end of a long investigation but he's come to terms with what November 8 meant. It's just the beginning.
1: Thing I had thought of this charity coverage as like a, you know, a, a very intense, but very worthwhile and meaningful experiment or experience. And it was going to be over on November 9th. And it, instead, um, is just the beginning. I mean, we're just at the beginning of something, not at the end of something. I think that was the, that was sort of a little um, shocking uh, at the beginning, but that's, you know, that's the job, you know, and I think we're now, you know, fully into that job.
0: Thanks for listening. If you're a fan of the show, rate us or write us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or share our show with your friends. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Riley Begin reported this story. Blake Nelson drew our episode art, and Sarah Hutchins is our editor. That's all for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Daniela Vidal.
1: Radio. Podcast. Podcast. I might want to do that